Hi, this is Jason Cascarino. Welcome to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of the Remaking Middle School Initiative. You can learn about Remaking Middle School on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org. Now, here's this episode. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, where we explore the many facets that impact young adolescents in the middle school years, from the adverse to the awkward to the awesome. I'm your host, Jason Cascarino. Today, we have part two of my conversation with David Strawn and Madison Sides-White, co-authors of the recently released book, Teaching Well with Adolescent Learners. David is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at Western Carolina University, having spent 50 years in education, largely focused on the development and preparation of teachers entering middle grade classrooms. Madison is a secondary English teacher in North Carolina. With a heavy use of narrative examples, their book attempts to bring together the research base in adolescent development and effective teaching in the middle grades, a combination that highlights how essential it is that teachers and students continuously build relationships of trust to foster positive social and academic development. If you think about good academic teaching, think about teachers who know how to scaffold well, you can break a tough concept down into manageable units and students can learn those units and work their way up through this. Even pretty sophisticated concepts can be done this way. Well, that's, that, that's a couple things. One, I'm understanding something better. Now I know the Pythagorean theorem. I never knew it before. But also it, it creates this sense of, of personal empowerment. It builds a sense of efficacy. And especially if you're doing that with your classmates, it, it can be very affirming. When you do that, when you create that, that confidence in you know, your students, it again reminds them that there is a trust. There is an adult that sees me and they know, they know my weakness and they're gonna help me with that. Or they know my strength and they're gonna appeal to that. And so it just is another bit of affirmation of there is someone that cares for me. It helps with that development of identity and worth. Here in part two of our conversation, David, Madison, and I talk about strategies for better linking academic and social learning, the importance of self-worth and efficacy, and how showcases of learning can bolster those assets, approaches to engage the current Generation Z adolescents, plus the need for teachers to be responsive in their teaching, the current sociopolitical challenges in doing that, and what we can learn from that to better the teaching and learning process going forward. Previously in part one of our conversation, we talked about how their book came about and how the current fragmented state of teacher education and preparation was a prime motivator for writing it. The ways in which the book brings together the latest research on adolescent learning and development and narratives that showcase teacher practice in their own voice and why and how building a foundation of trusting relationships becomes a thriving environment of teaching and learning. Part one is now available wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here is part two of my conversation with David Strawn and Madison Sides-White. Well, one of the things that you press in the book, which is interesting, is you know, we talked at the top, the, 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 the trying to build a bridge between research and, and practice, which are often sort of in a divide, you know, educators over here, youth development people over there, a number of these different divides. This is sort of another example where you know, we're talking about sort of the social context, but it also is deeply embedded within academics. 
you know, I, I sometimes joke that I, I wish in middle school we'd just park academics for a couple of years and just focus on, you know, identity development and relationships and developing intrinsic motivation and agency. I sort of half joke about that, I should say. But in the book, you you all have a, a take that educators can really help support healthy developmental changes and make connections within with academic concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, say Say a bit about that. When you were asking that question, the first thing that came to mind was we have to model what we want our students to to do. You know, you asked about, you know, teaching what we like to say is SEL, like social emotional learning, um, doing those activities, embed those with our academic content. Um, instead of saying, okay, we're going to do one hour of SEL and one hour of English and one hour of math, like, why can't we do SEL through English or SEL through math or science or whatever the content may be? I think blending those in, you know, research says that spending, you know, 90 minutes on one activity is our attention spans are just not there. If you have a lesson, but you want to break it up with a brain break and say, hey, we're going to go do this this activity where you're going to partner with someone and share a good thing about their day or give them a compliment just creating an environment where it doesn't all have to be we're going to sit down we're going to do this worksheet we're going to read this textbook we're going to we're going to do all of this work and have no play because in reality we we don't live in in a society where all we do is work it is possible to link academic learning with 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 the social learning as madison has said uh years ago in the early days of of middle schooling, we, we put a lot of emphasis on a, advisory programs for all the right reasons. And so now we're talking about the power of social-emotional learning. Well, the purpose of advisory programs 40 years ago was to try to support social-emotional learning. But one of the things we didn't do well was it was disconnected. So you'd have an advisory period and maybe an advisory teacher, and maybe you would do get to know you activities pretty well, and maybe, maybe have some some good serious discussions. I always liked advisory time. But for the students, it just seemed like a separate part of the day. It's like, okay, well, that was homeroom, you know. So we had our 20 minutes, and but, you know, then the rest of the day was just disconnected. Well, what good teachers have learned to do is, is find those ways, like Madison suggests, to really provide social support and, and emotional support, especially for identity development. Well, if you think about good academic teaching, think about teachers who know how to scaffold well, you can break a tough concept down into manageable units. And students can learn those units and work their way up through this. Even pretty sophisticated concepts can be done this way. Well, that's that. That's a couple things. One, I'm understanding something better. Now I know the Pythagorean theorem. I never knew it before. But also it, it creates this sense of, of personal empowerment. It builds a sense of efficacy. And especially if you're doing that with your classmates, it, it can be very affirming. So uh, we, we put some narratives in the book uh, that I hope that p- people will find and, and read that, that dig really deeply into this dynamic at the lesson level to show how, all right, yeah, it, 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 it can all come together, but whew, it takes a lot of work. When you do that, when you create that that confidence in you know your students, it again reminds them that there is a trust. There is an adult that sees me, and they know they know my weakness, and they're going to help me with that. 
or they know my strength and they're going to appeal to that. And so it just is another bit of affirmation of there is someone that cares for me. It helps with that development of identity and worth. We here, even on this on this podcast, I think we talk a lot about some of the key developmental features, and we often talk about identity development, and we talk about um, the so, social relationships and agency and so forth. We haven't touched upon enough, I don't think, in my view, the issue of efficacy, self-efficacy, self-worth, confidence, those kinds of things, which I think are really critical at this at this developmental stage, and. There are things that you're right, David. That they are there. Are a lot of students are coming in with with some deficits, but they're also coming in with assets. And and I imagine as a teacher, there are ways that you can emphasize sort of like the strength based approach, where you can tap into what are you really truly good at. You you often have sort of like programmatic things like I'm thinking of like uh, spoken word and I'm thinking of like maker spaces where, where young people have an opportunity to develop things that they care about that they're interested in and 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 showcase it and have people praise them for it and and that that, that latter piece that showcasing and that praise is a really critical component of the learning process as well yeah and I, I think again this is something that when it happens it's just so incredibly powerful. We're going against the grain still in so many ways that the prevailing cultural perception, I think, is that adolescence is kind of this time of storm and stress that, you know, the kids are unruly and, you know, they all hate school. We just got to get them through middle school so they can get into high school and then get into college. And But the reality is that 12-year-olds, you know, 14-year-olds can do some amazing things. And it, and one, one example really pops to mind. Um, one of the schools we worked with here uh, in, in our partnerships with Western Carolina University has this great tradition of doing integrated units by grade level, and they're very, very powerful. Well, well one of those um, has to do with world hunger. It's a wonderful integrated curriculum. It runs for about three weeks. And at the end of this, then there's a, a family celebration. So, so what they, they do is... They, they have a choice. They, they can make artwork and demonstrate something about uh, hunger or, or they can um, go with the, the art teacher and make these beautiful ceramic bowls or whatever. And then, then for the family night, they make soup and they serve the soup in the bowls and people bid on the bowls and they raise money uh, to give to the local food bank. And it's just a wonderful thing. But, but one, inevitably, there'll be parents who will walk out of that family event saying, man, I didn't know they could do that kind of stuff. And and they can do all sorts of wonderful things, but they need these opportunities to, to showcase that. And and one of the keys to that, I think, is choice. Um, and, and you've mentioned a couple times, you know, well, what about after-school programs? What about summer programs? Well, those programs contribute a great deal when, when they provide students uh, choices, and they can choose things that they want to learn more about. I mentioned before that there has been sort of a resurgence in the study and overall attention and investment in adolescents and adolescent learners. There's also been a growing interest in teasing out some of the unique factors influencing this particular crop of young adolescents, you know, Generation Z. I've had the opportunity to talk with some folks on this podcast who have surveyed Gen Z youth to try to understand their interests and motivations for education and career. And when people talk about the context in which Gen Zers are growing up, 
you know, they talk about social media, of course, but they also talk about what many young people view as as the existential threat of climate change. And there's the heightened conversations around race and justice, and there's a broader range of non-binary gender identities. And it's just, Madison, you're, you're, you're with young people all the time, the, the Gen Zers all the time. Just uh, talk about how teachers are grappling with these newer dynamics around Gen Z specifically and how, how your work can be a resource for, for, for doing so. My personal approach is getting to know the kids. Oftentimes people say, you know, we've got to prepare them for the real world or our kids are in the real world. Our students live in the real world every single day. And sometimes you just need to pull up a chair and say, hey, tell me what's going on. Tell me what you're interested in. Um, Giving them that voice and asking them questions. Oftentimes we tell students, you know, what to read or what to write or what to study. But when you kind of step back and you ask them questions about what they are interested in, you will start digging through those layers and uncovering the layers that this generation um, has because of what, whatever the reason is, whether it is social media, whether it is, you know, the threats that they face of climate change or their, their identity, or truly the, the world-changing event of the pandemic. Like, their development was impacted um, in ways that we don't even realize yet because of that event. Today in class, I conducted a quick Google form and I asked a couple questions of like, what do you like that we're doing in class? What do you not like? What do you wish Miss White knew? What do you wanna know before the next unit? Or what do you wanna know before you move into the next level of English? Um, And when we ask kids, be ready to hear their answers and don't ignore it, acknowledge it. Um, because if you if you do the introduction activities or the get to know you activities or you conduct the surveys and you ask the questions and you give they give information, if you ignore the information, then that's where that that trust starts to break down. But if you read the surveys or you read the the get to know you worksheets, whatever you whatever you decide to do, use it later in a conversation in the hallway. That reinforces the trust, and then you start to better understand your students. What's next? What are your aspirations for what can come out of this book? And, or, or what's next for the field, you know, either from a research perspective or, or a practice perspective or, or both? Since this incredible new level of urgency uh, about these issues of responsiveness, uh, and it, it's clearly become politicized, and teachers are, are facing, you know, not only pressures within their classroom, but in, in many cases, pressures within their community to try to do what they consider to be responsive, uh, which is coming from their students, or to respond to, to community pressures to make changes in the curriculum that would take those options away. And I'm speaking in particular about issues related to gender identity. I mean, this, uh, we have a great narrative in the book um, written by a teacher who, who, who and, and this, this is the, 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 the paradox. Uh, the narrative describes how she listened to students, found out that some of them were really struggling, you know, with issues of gender identity. And then they were really wrestling with some serious things and they wanted to talk about those. And so she found a way to incorporate those discussions within a social studies unit on social justice. Eventually the unit culminates with this field trip to Atlanta, you know, to go to the civil rights museum. In any case, it's, it's a powerful integrated learning experience, but 
it's a beautiful narrative, but when we talked more about it, she says, oh, I don't think I better attach my name to that. I really want to leave that anonymous. And so to me, that kind of captures this this moment in time, which is unique for me. I've never experienced this, where teachers are almost feeling that to do things that are truly responsive, they have to be especially careful about it. That's something I hope I hope we can study and, and in particular find ways to support teachers. Because I, I think in some schools, you know, maybe it's critical mass. There are enough teachers who are willing to, to take on the political pressure that, that they find ways to do that. But I also know from talking with folks, they, they're literally afraid to teach some of the titles they want to teach or to take on the discussions they want to take. And, and the, the message that students get from that is, oh my gosh, you know, this is like a forbidden topic. Identity in general is very sensitive and no, no one wants to make it feel as though no one is loved, you know, or someone is, is lacking that appreciation or that love. And so I think when feelings are involved, then people are sensitive and they're cautious. And, you know, my hope is that, that people just recognize that they the, the intentions are that people feel loved and seen and valued and that our students are, are seeking that, that attention, and I mean that in a positive way. They're, they're seeking that someone sees them and values them and recognizes them. Finally, what we always ask at the end, what's one thing you'd like our listeners to take away from this conversation? We covered a lot of ground. You know, you worked a lot in this field around the um, middle school education research and practice things you'd like educators both in school and in after school and in summer programs to know or be able to do? The biggest takeaway is that kids want to be seen, they want to be heard, and they want to be valued. And we educators um, are missing the opportunity um, to empower students if they don't listen to them. Sit down and have a conversation with, with students, with adolescents. Just talk to them, get to know them. And when you do, I know you will be blown away because I have. And then we need to allow those conversations to not just stop at the table, but to take action and to empower them because they are truly our future and they will change the world. But we have to be able to to partner with them. My hope, you know, the one big takeaway would be very, very similar to that. And I mentioned earlier about, about, how much thought we gave to the title of the book. And I, I do think that maybe that is the biggest idea, the distinction between teaching with uh, and teaching to and, and the power of teaching with and and the importance of collaboration. And it can be exciting. You know, what we haven't really highlighted the great joys in teaching. I mean, we've talked a lot about the challenges. You know, teaching can just be a whole lot of fun. Uh, it can be an exciting time. And I think a lot of that, the joy in teaching comes from the collaboration and the teaching with, and, and, you know, it's collaboration in the classroom, as you suggested, Jason, also it's collaboration outside the classroom. And so, so my hope would be if, 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 a, if a, anyone who reads the book, you know, wants to say, Hey, I, I, I want to be a little more responsive and you know, I'll use some of the tools because we've got some really specific tools for, for ways you can gather information about students. But, you know, the meta message is find, find some kindred spirits. 
if the kindred spirits are not in your hallway, go to an online forum or, you know, come to a middle school conference or, or something like that. But, you know, try to find some other people that take the same joy in teaching that you do. Because, gosh, it's difficult. I mean, that, you know, but uh, the joy is there, I think. I mean, Madison's still smiling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It There's just a, a reward that you can't put into words. It's just a truly, it's, I'm blessed to have this job in this profession, and I wouldn't change it. David Madison, thanks for writing this book and, and sharing it with us. I, I, I know I continue to learn from folks like you, and I'm, I'm hopeful that others in the space will, will do the same. So thank you so much for all your contributions. and It's just been a delight to talk with you about them. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That was David Strawn and Madison Sides White, authors of Teaching Well with Adolescent Learners. You can learn more about the book and how to purchase it by searching for it at the Association for Middle-Level Education store online at amle.org. Remember, you can look out for part one of my conversation with David and Madison, which is out now on the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, where we feature conversations with researchers, practitioners, program developers, and advocates for young adolescents in the middle school years. Recently, I interviewed Rob Winstead and Maria Beninsky from VMDO, a 45-year-old architectural firm headquartered in Charlottesville, Virginia. Rob is principal and K-12 studio leader for VMDO and Maria, associate architect. VMDO has built a long track record of leading-edge design in learning spaces, K-12 schools, higher education institutions, and community recreational buildings. The firm stands out in its use of research science to create learning spaces that are attuned to the learning and development of students. Physical space can be an especially powerful influencer of educational engagement and performance, as well as positive development for young adolescents in the middle grades. Air quality, access to daylight and views, appropriate acoustic environments that aren't, you know, you're not hearing HVAC noise, you're not hearing buzzing lights. You know, there's enough absorptive material in the classroom, really impact people's ability to learn and to function cognitively. And, and these are things that are talked about a lot in the design of, you know, class A office space. Employers, you know, are eating this up, return on investment, fewer sick days. Um, but these are not things that many school districts have learned to demand of their buildings. And who is in there, you know, in middle school, like we've discussed today, people who are at some of their most sensitive development and, you know, shouldn't that be the top priority for who gets this kind of healthy um, environment? You can listen to both parts of my conversation with Rob and Maria wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for joining the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of Remaking Middle School an initiative that seeks to transform the learning and development experience for young adolescents in the middle school years. Remaking Middle School brings together good educational practice in school and out of school with the latest developmental science. You can learn about Remaking Middle School or find more resources about the topics of this podcast on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org or learn more about the founding partner organizations, the University of Virginia's Youth Next Center, on the web at education.virginia.edu slash youth-nex, or on Twitter at youth underscore nex, and the Association for Middle-Level Education, on the web at amle.org, or on Twitter at amle. 
The Lessons in Adolescence podcast is produced by Abby Gillespie and me, Jason Cascarino. Editing by Paige Waterhouse. You can listen to or download each episode at the Remaking Middle School website, on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.